Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about gambling as taxation. Or for that matter, even gambling as tourism. Neither one is what I'd call a long play. find inappropriate conversations at Stitcher. Stitcher.com is a smart way to listen to podcasts and other news and information on the go. When I carry my smartphone with me, one of the ways I listen to all the shows I enjoy, and it is quite a large number, is Stitcher. A couple of things I want to do in this particular inappropriate conversation, and one of them is a look back to a point of view I had maybe 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, about what was going to happen as the trend in the country on the issues related to gambling, and particularly the lottery, spread. And the other thing I want to do, then, is talk a little bit about whether or not we are doing the right thing by promoting these sorts of ventures, whether they be lottery or casino or, or other sorts of betting, as a way of raising tax funds. And the argument that I'm going to make is that although I have no inherent problem with gambling as an individual citizen... I will participate. And my issues with gambling on the whole don't really have any strong religious foundation. It's not that you can't find a religious foundation. That's easy to do. I just don't intend to do it here on this inappropriate conversation because I feel like there's other programs, particularly other programs that come from a Christian perspective, that are going to offer the same old line. And it's an old line that's worth hearing. I just don't feel the need to share it. No, instead, I think it's important to talk about the question of whether gambling is the right way to raise revenue and whether there's actually something a little bit insulting about proposals that put forth gambling as a solution to a particular social issue or particular financial need that a state is trying to fund using gambling as a way of raising money. Having said that, I'm just going to grant without comment that there are certain things that gambling brings into a community that are not healthy. You often find, if you wander into a casino, a lot of people there who probably do not have the means to be spending the money that they're spending. People on fixed income, people with disabilities, uh, some of the the people who earn less money. The, the old saying, and I'm not sure how true it is because I don't spend a lot of time combing every quadrant of a casino to have a fully vetted perspective. But the notion is that maybe most of the people who could afford to lose a lot of money gambling don't actually lose that money gambling. It's not an activity they spend a lot of time in. Whereas the lottery tends to be played, at least from my personal observation, most consistently and aggressively by people who really don't have the dollar to give up. When things went bad in the economy a few years ago, uh, early in 2008 and then on into 2009, for example, you see a lot of people among my coworkers at the time who were playing the lottery every week. Some of them went from chipping in $1 or $2 every week to even more because worried over losing their job, worried about the employment situation of their spouse or significant other, and they somehow got the notion that the last thing they'd want to do is miss out on a big lottery winning. As I mentioned, I don't have a personal issue with gambling. I find the activity itself to be rather boring. It's not something that I 
I get excited about. I would never watch lottery numbers, at least intentionally, spend time watching lottery numbers being revealed uh, in the middle of the evening, right after the news, or whenever they do that. I, I don't play the lottery, although I have before. And I don't tend to enjoy my time in casinos, although I somehow find a way to make it work. A few weeks ago on an inappropriate conversation show, I mentioned that on those occasions when I've been traveling in Las Vegas and gambling has been involved, my strategy tends to simply be, how long can I make whatever money I'm spending on a slot machine or whatever last long enough to pick up the free drinks that sort of compensate for the activity? So as long as people are bringing me drinks, I'm willing to hang around and push a few buttons and watch a, you know, a machine like a slot machine in some ways, kind of like a video game element. I'd rather spend time in a machine that's entertaining because that's really the only entertainment I'm getting. I, I never go in with a notion that I'm going to somehow win big or even really win small. One of the disappointing things about some of the casinos that I've encountered in places other than Las Vegas is that a lot of them don't have a free drink policy. There are state laws in some cases that prohibit the giving out of complimentary cocktails, which for me, of course, nullifies the entire point. From a lottery perspective, when you notice that you're sitting in an office environment and to some degree your success hinges upon the effectiveness of the people you're working with, to me, those are the best situations I've been in, whether inside a store or inside an office. I like working in situations where I know that the people around me are making a difference and that if several of them were to suddenly quit their job because they want $100 million, my quality of life would go down. So for a period of time, during those darker days when the economic downturn was hitting, I participated, put in a couple of dollars, maybe not every week, but a lot of weeks, and most of it was simply to play a role, you know, to offer that same consolation that they were getting for themselves by hoping that they were going to win big and insulate themselves from the risk of what might happen with their career or with their job or, frankly, even with the economy. Because I maintained all the way through that if I was one of those people who won my chunk of a big, you know, lottery prize, I wouldn't immediately quit. And most people looked at me skeptically, like, yeah, they didn't believe me. Some people thought I was, you know, just lying or kidding or deluding myself. But I really, I maintain fairly steadfastly. <laughs> Every now and then you, you sort of dream the dream a little, right? But I always told myself, even if I was somehow an accidental lottery winner, which is probably the best way to describe what would have happened if that had occurred, is that I would have paid off any debts that I had, finished paying for the house, for example, uh, anything remaining on cars or credit cards, fully fund kids' college accounts, that sort of thing. And then invest the rest as well as you can in a very low interest situation that we were in at the time and we still are now and try my best to allow that interest to um, just supplement the normal income because I really had no intention of quitting. You almost have to do something with your life and not being the kind of person who had a strong volunteerism avocation. I mean, I'm sure there are people who know exactly what they do for the food bank or for the health clinic or in missionary work or whatever. But it's funny with the church and gambling. Winning a huge lottery is not always the best you know, entrance for you into the field of missionary work. There are many congregations who would look askance at that sort of an approach. I even made a mention that the church that I was at at the time was doing a building fund and winning the lottery would be one way to, to help participate and maybe even give a huge head start to that building fund. But we never won the lottery. 
I did have a coworker who initially disagreed with me pretty strongly, but then I think she she saw the light. She understood what I was getting at in terms of saying there's a tremendous amount of freedom in working because you want to versus working because you have to. But she had a much shorter leash on her situation. Rather than refusing to quit and continuing to come into work because you enjoy the job, you believe in the cause, you want to continue to contribute. She said she would simply come into the office and start telling people a lot more truths a lot more bluntly. Now, my friend was not a liar. It wasn't that she had big secrets to conceal. I think she was referring more to the little white lies, the things you wanted to say back to somebody who was being at least foolish, if not outright rude in your presence, but chose the better course. I think she was saying to me that she would stop choosing the better course if she won the lottery, essentially daring people to fire her. And I told her that, yeah, you know, on some level, I could definitely get behind that approach, but that she might not want to get her hopes too far up, that that kind of approach in some office environments wouldn't inevitably lead to you being fired and therefore you wouldn't have to quit to live off your lottery winnings. It might just get you a series of promotions. Sometimes telling the truth in the realm of office politics is an extremely dangerous thing to do. And at other times, it's an extremely shrewd strategy. And the problem is, it's hard to tell which one's which. So I come to this with a very open mind. Uh, As a Christian who understands the admonitions against gambling in the Bible, particularly in the Proverbs, and it's important to understand the role of Proverbs in the midst of biblical texts, not necessarily a proclamation, more of really good advice is kind of how the Proverbs truly ought to be read. So I understand that. But at the same time, I also want to be in fellowship with people, to support them, to care about them, perhaps even to reach them, depending on how you interpret that word. That doesn't work if I put myself on a self-righteous high horse and gallop away. So I've gambled before, and no doubt I will again. But I don't enjoy the idea of using it as a means of taxation. And something like 20 years ago, I spoke bluntly about whether or not it made sense to do it as a form of tourism. Let me just read that old perspective, and then I'll speak to it from there. And believe it or not, before I'm done, this is all going to tie back into reality television. One day, every state in the nation will have its own form of gambling as taxation. Either through lottery or casino or combination, competition alone will ultimately force every state to conform. The reason? Gambling as taxation is only profitable if tourism contributes to the process. For this reason, states without a lottery lose potential capital when citizens participate in the lottery of a neighboring state. Likewise, money spent at a casino by vacationers is invested in the neighboring state rather than at home, in the home state. Access to non-resident revenue is the key to gambling as taxation, because the method is otherwise highly inefficient. Say that half the money spent on a lottery funds education in the state, while the other half maintains the lottery itself with salaries, advertisement, and payoffs. 50 cents is a poor return in services for taxpayer dollars. If the state fails to attract outside money, then all that remains is a highly inefficient method of funding an essential state service. The problem on the horizon is that tourism dollars will dry up once every state follows the same gambling-as-taxation course. Once non-lottery states try their hand 
all states will essentially be reshuffling their own deck, with no reliable infusion of cash from visitors. Playing games with revenue earmarked for critical services is a bad gamble. For better or worse, though, the hand has already been dealt. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, Simpsons Indicated's foray into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, hey, Doctor Who. What are you talking about? To the new... I'm the Doctor. I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good... We all make no one. We are the superior beings. To the bad... No, not the mind's broke. From the sublime... Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous... My dreams of conquest! We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. That's The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, part of the simply syndicated 21st Century Media Network. Splendid fellows, all of you, all of you. So in that article years ago, I make note of the fact that eventually the tourism aspect of gambling, as it was in the early 90s, was going to dry up. That a lot of money flowing into some states was flowing to their lottery from people who lived within a 30-minute drive of the border. And there were actually convenience stores and gas stations and truck stops that would set themselves up as a lottery depot to sort of take advantage of those people who were crossing state lines to participate in state lotteries back then. The other thing was the notion of casino gambling. Uh, Indian casino gambling would have probably been the most common at the time, but more and more we're seeing it state by state creep up. But truthfully, I don't believe, and I don't know for sure, but I just have my doubts as to whether people are actually booking a week-long getaway to Cleveland with the goal of participating in gambling at a casino that's recently been built there, maybe catching an NBA game on the weekend. It seems more likely that if you are going to travel to gamble, if gambling is part of your vacation plan, that there's still no real competition in any of these states that have tried their hand at casinos lately for Las Vegas, or certainly cruise ships or exotic European locales. You just don't see it. So whatever short-term benefit, whatever protection might have been inspired within a legislature to say we need a lottery because people are crossing borders to play other people's lotteries, well, that's now short-lived because now almost every state has a lottery. Another reason I'm not a fan of the lottery itself is that more often than not, if you find yourself in a convenience store line trying to pay inside where it's warm for a gasoline purchase, or because you're there to fill up the car, you go inside to pick up a soft drink or something like that, you know the line that's the longest and it's the most backlogged you know, at the checkout counter is going to have somebody there who's buying lottery tickets. I don't want to cast every person who participates in the lottery with the same brush, but you know the type of you've been very often inside these convenience stores. There's somebody there who's stopping the cashier from moving to the next transaction because they're seriously mulling over exactly which numbers are going to give them their share of the mega millions. It doesn't work for me when I'm a consumer standing in line. But more importantly, it doesn't work for me as a taxpayer. If we want to raise revenue to pay for some key social issue, or 
to advance the cause of education, which will then hopefully forestall the need to raise revenue to pay for more police or or address a, a social issue or a social need. If the federal government and the state government have cut funds for mental health and the local community decides they want to raise money for that, then there are better ways of doing it than within any sort of wagering campaign. If you want to take a dollar and earmark that dollar toward education or toward mental health services or more police or more firefighters or you know, simply economic advancement by sending a team of people over to other countries to encourage them to invest economically in their state or, or encourage businesses to move jobs into the state, whatever you're spending the tax dollars on, it's always ideal when one of those dollars goes 100% toward whatever it's being earmarked to do. And the problem with things like lotteries and also casinos is that you don't get that same mix. There are people in this country who, if they found out that a program like United Way, for example, only was able to give 80 or 85% of the donation toward the cause that the United Way is supporting, or heaven forbid even less than that, would be outraged. The very idea that 20% or 15% is being skimmed right off the top to pay for things like administrative fees and costs, to pay for staff, to cover the you know, cost of printing. Why did you print that in glossy color when you could have used a more affordable black and white? All those sort of thoughts. Anything that, if I give a dollar to a food bank, I want that dollar to turn into food, and I want that food to get in the hands of somebody who desperately needs it due to the state of unemployment in our country today or whatever else their circumstance may be. And so for all those people who get outraged that only 80 to 85 cents of their dollar, in the cases of some charitable groups, makes its way toward the cause. Well, the lottery is 50 cents at best. It's a bad investment. And it's, it's dishonest. Because we frankly should be asking more of the kinds of people who don't choose to gamble as a way of providing for themselves financial security. Both because it's not a good way of providing yourself with financial security, and also because if you're already financially secure, then why would you throw the money away on something with well, long odds at best. Gambling doesn't work for this reason. The most recent form of gambling that I've seen, and one of the reasons that I decided I'd finally hit this topic, is reality TV. By its nature, there's a lottery effect to reality TV. And I'm not a fan. I've spoken about it before, and probably the second year, early on in the second year of Inappropriate Conversations, uh, talking about the quality of television in general, and reality TV in particular. But there is one reality television show that I've seen more than perhaps any other, which isn't much. I've told people before, my reality TV is sports. If I had a second choice, it might be news, and it wouldn't be 24-hour news. It'd be as local as possible. But my wife is a fan of the show Undercover Boss, and I have friends, some of them in the church, some of them outside the church, who've told me on more than one occasion that almost any time they can see a show where somebody goes from being in a tough spot or a difficult situation to a great spot and a better situation, they'll watch that. So extreme makeover type shows. The extreme home makeover, move that bus kind of show. I had a pastor friend who told me once that that program in particular really resonates with him because it gives him an image of redemption, an image of God's love, an image of being lost and being found, the before and after that is the undercurrent of so much 
of religion and spirituality throughout the world, Christianity in particular. But it's actually the heavy-handedness of some of the shows that put me off. An Undercover Boss as a TV show is no different. Despite the fact that it's regarded highly in my home, you still have the same situation. To explain the TV show for those who aren't watching Friday Night Television all that often, you have a business. So essentially, being on Undercover Boss is one way for a company to give itself some PR, to expose itself. Because early on in the show, there's you know an explanation of, well, what is this company, and what do they do, and who's the boss, and what's his role, and how is he going to find out about his company? Well, he's going to go undercover, going to disguise himself as either a regular employee, or more often going to disguise himself, somewhat ironically, as a character in a reality TV show. Usually it's a person who's on a reality TV show to learn about business, to see if he can uh, get uh, awarded some money to open his own business, sort of an entrepreneur type show. And in this case, he goes in and learns about his own company from behind the scenes by interacting directly with what I would describe as frontline employees, whether they be the people who fry the chicken at the restaurant or the person in the warehouse who actually picks and fulfills the website's internet orders. That kind of interaction. And so you see these you know, very well-to-do people, very comfortable, highly paid executives you know, driving front loaders and um, you know, delivering bakery goods and you know, in normal roles. And that's, to me, one of the things that makes the show interesting is seeing that gap between could I go back to where I was 20 years ago and work a week full of shifts in the record store? I think it would be harder than I think it would be having not been in that environment for a significant period of time. And Undercover Boss reveals that. But the other thing that happens in the show is that the boss spends break time and lunch time and even some of the working time interacting with the people that he meets or she meets. And you would assume that they probably don't use all the footage that they take. That it would be an amazing coincidence if every week the boss goes out and meets three or four people and every time he meets people with a wide variety of experiences. And inevitably one of them has some serious problem a medical bill they can't pay, or a family life problem, like with a spouse or whatever, where they're essentially homeless or on the verge of being homeless. You always have that story, and it just doesn't seem likely to me that they could cut film footage five days a week and always come away with three or four of these stories. The odds are just not that good, unless there's a lot of scouting beforehand to find those situations, and again, to find them without the employee being in on it. One of the things I think that gives the show a little bit of credibility is that every now and then there is an example where the employee figures it out, and it's always a surprise. So I don't think that it's as staged as some reality TV shows are, but I find it incredibly dull. And the reason I find it dull is that it always follows the same pattern. Boss goes out into the field, meets some employees. Sometimes they're screwing up and doing things badly. Sometimes they're doing things hideously and get fired. More often than not, though, he meets people who are really trying to do the best they can. And sometimes there's situations where the office environment, the office politics, company policies interfere with their ability to serve their customers well, and the boss sees something that she or he really needs to see and really can respond to. More often, it's not quite as systemic and sweeping as that. More often, they simply meet an individual facing some of the unique challenges that individuals far too often face these days the inability to make minimum wage work, for example, or the inability to make even a assistant manager-type job work if you're facing the crippling burden of serious college debt 
or a big medical emergency, or some other kind of family problem. And at the end of the show, the boss introduces himself or herself to the employees that were met along the way. Often it's a surprising reveal where the employee is shocked that that can really be the same person, because some of the disguises are really good and some of the disguises are elaborate and ridiculous, but often good enough to fool people. And then, without exception in the more than a handful or two of shows I've seen, the boss doles out something like $100,000 in cash. Well, not in cash per se, but by spending thousands of dollars at a time, the boss pays off the student loan debt of the first person that he worked with. And the second person who can't get married because she can't save up enough money for her wedding pays for the wedding. And the third person who wants nothing more than to you know, revisit Mexico and, and see his grandparents' grave gets an all-expenses-paid trip to Mexico for the entire family. A lot of that money given away, and often with a legitimate emotional response, sometimes from me, usually from people in my family, because there is something incredibly heartwarming about somebody who has means, meeting people who have no or very little means, and personally intervening, personally helping them out, playing, again, somewhat of a savior role, as my pastor friend would say. The problem with it is that it's all a bit of a lottery. It's the random chance of which employees did this boss happen to meet on the Undercover Boss show. How would it have gone differently if the trainer had paired him up with a different person for his first day on the job or her first day out on the, out of the field? It's all somewhat random. So unless it's engineered in advance and none of it's actually true, which is to some ways a hallmark of your typical reality TV show, it's still just as troubling because there are probably that many more employees scattered throughout that sporting good chain or scattered throughout that restaurant chain who have the exact same problems and are not getting the same help. Instead of doing something that cuts across the board in terms of the salary or the benefits that the company provides, that money is instead being funneled toward the one lucky person who happened to meet the boss on that particular reality TV show, Film Day. In other words, it's just a touch too random for my taste. Now, I don't want to be too harsh. From time to time, not every show, but on a lot of shows, the boss that goes out to meet and interact with his team members as they're dealing directly with customers does find things that need to be fixed. Equipment that's old and out of date and should have been replaced on a planned maintenance schedule years earlier. Or you know, sexual harassment, where policies that should be in place to prevent that kind of thing aren't getting the job done. Or other issues where some little subtlety that you might never know if you weren't actually interacting directly with employees. And if employees were, in this case, tricked into telling you peer-to-peer what they really thought because they might be too afraid for their jobs to tell you the truth otherwise. This cuts back to my friend who said, hey, if she won the lottery, she wouldn't quit. She'd come into work, start telling people the truth. Well, you know what? Lots of good things can happen when those kinds of truths are told in the right way, in sort of a collegial way where the intent is to make us all collectively better, to help us to do a more effective job as an organization, whether the mission is to serve customers or to take care of the needy or whatever your role is, be it profit or non-profit, sometimes getting to that truth is the most difficult thing to do. 
but where Undercover Boss falls down. And I find this principle applies to most of the reality TV shows, is that it's all just a little bit random for me. Instead of being something that truly is out to find issues and resolve them, it's more like a version of a lottery. You just have to be lucky enough to get your ticket punched on that particular day. You know, I was thinking about this notion of being lucky enough and the kind of people who need to win the lottery. One of the first things that jumped into my mind was our different drummer this week. And not so much Tom Waits, the singer, songwriter, actor, but the persona that Waits put on, especially in the early part of his career. But I believe some element of that person on the outskirts of society has been a through line throughout his entire career. And I'm going to try to cover that as much as I can in a brief musician-based different drummer segment that may come off when it's all said and done as a bit of a quote fest. Actually, the first time I ever heard him sing was on an album that the used record store didn't want to take. I think I was with an acquaintance, not a friend. I was actually with some friends and an acquaintance at the used record store in my college town. So all the way through high school, had I heard Tom Waits, I didn't know it. It didn't resonate with me. But I was in this particular environment, and albums were being brought in to you know, cash in or to trade and so forth. And somebody had an original vinyl, two-record set of Tom Waits' Nighthawks at the Diner. Now, this is one of his first maybe three albums, really early in his career. And at the time that I heard it, of course, I had no clue. To me, this could have been his 17th album. It was a live album. And when you think about live albums, normally the live album is a version of the Greatest Hits collection. More often than not. If you're picking up a live album by the Rolling Stones or the Who, for example, what you're getting is a version of a Greatest Hits recording that instead of being the radio songs, it's captured in front of a, usually a big arena, right? But in Nighthawks at the Diner, what Tom Waits chose to do was to create sort of a fictitious show, introducing brand new songs, but introducing them in a way that made it seem like the people who had come to see the show were familiar with the material, at least with some of the material. And the charm of Nighthawks at the Diner were that in some cases his introductions to songs were as long as the songs themselves. A lot of banter, to and fro with the band, to and fro with the audience, and told from a very down-and-out-and-drifter kind of a perspective, singing songs like Warm Beer and Cold Women and uh, Nighthawk Postcards from Easy Street, uh, songs like that. And so I heard this for the first time on a piece of vinyl that was so scratched up and so warped that it was basically given to me by this person because he didn't want it, and the used record store didn't want it either. I think my roommate, who at the time had a nicer turntable than I did, so for the first year uh, that I was at college, my turntable stayed home, and we used my roommate's turntable. He was more than just a little justifiably terrified that I was playing this piece of crap vinyl on his player. Now, he may have had issues with the music itself, Brian's taste ran toward the smooth jazz, wave jazz side of the spectrum on one side, all the way to maybe Prince on the other side, where his interest was in extremely pristine sonic quality and outstanding musicianship. And I think probably a lot of jazz, and certainly the artist Prince, fit that bill. 
He was not at all prepared for what to do with this piano-playing, seemingly inebriated singer who, you know, you know, kind of draws his way through the, through the sounds, through the songs, often with asides that are, you know, nonsensical to the lyrics. But I was quite taken by it, because it was almost like you'd unearthed something from a space capsule. I was hearing something for the first time that was my first introduction to Waits, and if you've not listened to Tom Waits before and wanted to dive in after hearing maybe a recommendation from a friend. If you're going in that cold, I recommend Nighthawks at the Diner, just because, for me, it was a great starting point. And it includes a line of dialogue that I use often, especially this time of year, when the weather has been quite as chilly as it is. I'll use the expression, it's cold out there, colder than a ticket taker's smile at the Ivar Theater on a Saturday night. This is a reference to the very first song on that album, Waits talking about an emotional weather report. In fact, I think it might even be his intro to the song rather than the song itself. Again, the nature of the album, Nighthawks at the Diner, from 1975. No, for me, I didn't know what the Ivar Theater was at the time. It took me to the uh, era of the internet to actually break down and look it up. It was what you'd think it was. I was thinking it was either an adult movie theater or something like that. It was a burlesque show. So if it's a Saturday night and you're alone and you're buying one ticket to go to a burlesque show, then you know the life's dealt you a pretty cold hand. You've been dealt a rotten set of cards, as the saying goes. And that pretty much characterizes Tom Waits' crowd. His characters all have that sort of you know, rotten set of cards quality to them. The only example of a song on that album that I think was not his, most of the rest are originals, was uh, Big Joe and Phantom 309 remake of a very old country song that would have appeared, actually reenacted in some ways, in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the movie, the Pee-wee Herman movie. So it gives you a sense of the material that you're dealing with. What I want to do, rather than go through anything that you could read yourself on IMDb from the perspective of his filmography, or even to talk too much more about his career, he's a California-born singer with strong California roots, to me, the most important thing about Waits are the lyrics. So I think, willfully turning this into a quote fest perhaps, I'm just going to wander through some of the songs on the 16 albums that I've got on my MP3 player that I carry around with me. Not all of them, but some of them. Just dealing with some of the things where, a lot of times, more often perhaps than I realize, I'm in situations where a Tom Waits lyric is the right answer, or the right caption for the picture I'm looking at. From his concert album, Big Time, which is not the best way to start with Tom Waits, in my opinion, Big Time is a movie that needs some context, and the concert film itself doesn't provide much. Whereas a concert show like the Talking Heads movie, Stop Making Sense, brings you in and makes you feel like you're actually part of that crowd, and you could have never heard the Talking Heads before and get it by the time the show's over. Big Time... Not quite so simple. But one of the tracks that was used in the soundtrack to Big Time was an original called Falling Down. And oftentimes when I see people doing engaging in activities like fat shaming, in particular fat shaming, but it's also true in other aspects of privilege, the lyric that jumps into my head is a Tom Waits lyric that says, he wants you to steal and get caught because he loves you for all that you're not. Whenever I find myself in locker room type conversations with men, who are more interested in what women aren't, that they're thin, meaning they're not curvy. 
that lyric comes to my mind. And that you wonder, is the perfect woman for some of these men a stick figure? Did they grow up thinking that olive oil truly was the catch that Popeye and Brutus should have been fighting over? Taking these albums somewhat up alphabetically in order, I'm going to go to Bone Machine. Now, this is the album for which Tom Waits won Best Alternative Rock Artist, maybe the first time that that category was offered in the Grammy Awards. It's a 1992 recording, Bone Machine, and it was somewhat controversial, but interestingly with Tom Waits, he's been nominated for Grammy Awards in categories like folk and alternative and rock. The truth is, the music industry doesn't know what to do with Tom Waits. And that, of course, to anybody who's listened to any of these previous inappropriate conversations, especially where musicians are involved, knowing, you just need to know that being beyond category is a fast track for different drummer consideration. Bone Machine has a number of interesting tracks. I Don't Want to Grow Up is one of them, remade well by both the Ramones and separately by Holly Cole. But the one I would quote is Murder in the Red Barn, a storytelling song that describes, actually, the investigation into a murder. And the line that always... Two lines that resonate with I'll share two. There's nothing strange about an axe with blood stains in the barn. There's always a little killing you've got to do around the farm. But there was a murder in the red barn. That's one. And the other one is, uh... Roadkill has its seasons just like anything. There's possums in the autumn, and there's farm cats in the spring. Way Down in the Hole is probably familiar with any fan of the TV show The Wire. I don't spend a lot of time watching TV series produced for pay TV movie channels, so I don't see a lot of Showtime or HBO shows. But by all accounts, The Wire is an excellent television series, and Way Down in the Hole has become its theme song. It's also one of my favorite songs from the Frank's Wild Years album. The Heart of Saturday Night um, has an excellent title track. As an album, it's best known for Shiver Me Timbers, which was remade by Bette Midler, among others. But The Heart of Saturday Night includes Paid on Friday, your pockets are jingling. Then you see the lights and you get all tingling as you're cruising with a six, looking for the heart of Saturday night. That might be one of my favorite Holly Cole remakes as well from her jazz pop interpretations of Tom Waits on the album Temptation. 1999 may be the most recent Tom Waits album that I have several tracks from on my MP3 player. Mule Variations was the name of the album. Hold On got him a Grammy nomination. Picture in a Frame may be my favorite song from the album itself, but the one that always jumps out at me is a track called What's He Building? Around the time that I saw the movie The Burbs for the first time, which, I guess in the way I'm telling the story, I'm acknowledging that I didn't see The Burbs when it came out. It's a movie that I saw sometime after 1999. It wasn't that many years ago, in fact, probably 2008. The first thing I thought when I saw The Burbs was the song by Tom Waits, What's He Building? It's almost like it's an annotated piece of the storytelling. If I had to name a favorite Tom Waits song, I might go in one of two directions. One would be from the soundtrack to One from the Heart, a track called Empty Pockets. It's actually a dual track on the CD version of the soundtrack with Once Upon a Town. I think of it as being Purple Avenue from Holly Cole's first album, but the lyrics are essentially the same. And really, one of my, again, lyrically, a Tom Waits song that I have a great deal of patience for. Uh, it told in the context of One from the Heart, I barely remember it. But essentially, little lines like, And now I spill myself another drink. I count the whiskers, 
in the sink. The orchestra is blind, but I've never been the worrying kind. Subsequently, and furthermore, I'll sleep right here on the draining floor. I'll never be paroled. I like to drink them while they're cold. All I've got are empty pockets now. That, or from Nighthawks at the Diner, the first Tom Waits album I ever owned, such as it was, you know, <laughs> that being that far away from mint condition, called Warm Beer and Cold Women. And I'll just let you look that one up online. It's absolutely fantastic. The other thing about Tom Waits that I would do a shout-out for is how his contributions have been used in influential ways by other artists. Things from straight-up top 40 pop, like Rod Stewart's interpretation of Downtown Train, or on the other side of the coin, the folk, the first legitimate American Recordings folk album by Johnny Cash, including a song that Tom Waits wrote called Down There by the Train. I'd be surprised if I haven't shared lyrics from that particular song before, if only talking about Johnny Cash himself. These are really great songs that Waits has very magnanimously given to others. Yet at the same time, Waits has always maintained that he didn't think that it was his job, nor the job of any artist, to provide jingles for the use in commercial advertisement. More than one time, in fact, more than just a couple of times, Waits has been offered the opportunity to allow his voice, or at least one of his songs, to be used in advertisements for products, and he has consistently and always, to my knowledge always, turned them down. On a couple of occasions, his will has been defied by people who don't seem to respect what copyright should be all about. To me, copyright should be about sharing the music, not shilling the music. And it, on these occasions, Waits has sued, in cases settled out of court, in other cases gone all the way to judgment and won verdicts against people for finding sound-alike copycat people to imitate his voice, sing his song anyway, or sing songs in the style of his persona anyway. And he is stuck to his guns in terms of saying, hey, if I decide I don't want to be like the Doors and suddenly have one of my big hits turn into Come On Buick, Light My Fire, he has a right to say no to those things. On that particular issue, Waits is quoted in Wikipedia as saying, Apparently the highest compliment our culture grants artists nowadays is to be in an ad, ideally naked, and purring on the hood of a new car. This was referring to Mercury Cougar, saying, again with a quote, I have adamantly and repeatedly refused this dubious honor. The dubious honor that really belongs to Waits is that without really having a top 40 hit, without being the cliché of a rock superstar, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And deservedly so, in part because people like me have his lyrics rattling around my head and captioning the scenes that I see around me. And no doubt if I were witnessing a, an even bigger cross-function of society, I'd imagine that Waits has lyrics for almost anything that I might encounter. The quote I've seen from Waits upon his induction into the Hall of Fame is, They say I have no hits and that I'm difficult to work with, like it's a bad thing. Not only is it not a bad thing, it's the kind of thing that makes Tom Waits a different drummer. In 
in part because of my introduction to Waits' music, and particularly his lyrics. I always imagine him standing in a pool hall somewhere, back in the era when a place like that would have been a smoke-filled room, bottle of beer somewhere nearby, eyeballing out a five-ball combination shot that's no sweat. It's just the way it is. It's baked into his lyrics. It's baked into the way he tells his stories. Waits is a character, maybe not as an individual, but the characters that he portrays strike me as the kind of people who'd come from the wrong side of the tracks, who'd gotten a rotten set of cards, who'd been on the short end of the stick, and who, unfortunately, the way we manage most of the gambling that we do within our state legislatures, within our halls of government, our officially sanctioned gambling in the United States, is built entirely upon the notion of preying upon just those people. People who are two sheets to the wind and don't have two nickels to rub together and are hoping that if they somehow rub them just right, they'll win big. It's not the best use of our funds. It's not the right way to make a difference in the lives of those individuals. It's cowardly in that we seem not to have the courage to do things in a way that is genuinely effective and truly sustainable. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. The website at inappropriateconversations.org has show notes with comments enabled. You'll find me on Twitter at ic underscore greg is my Twitter name. I also have Facebook pages for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth, each of the podcasts that are available on the same feed for inappropriateconversations.org and I interact on them as often as I can. Thanks for listening. Carlin, common sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. 
Dan Carlin. Common Sense.